And what does it what does it say on the screen? Oh shoot, that says Art House Drive-In? Splittooth Media's latest film podcast? Aren't we the the co-hosts of that podcast? Are you Robert? Are you T? Oh snap! Is that is that our faces up in the sky? Uh, looking pretty good, looking pretty good. I guess we'll be coming back here pretty uh, pretty often then, at least every week. At least every week, talking about at least one film or two short films, or I guess we'll be going on a on a journey through the world of our house film. I guess. Yeah, that's pretty. That's gonna be pretty cool. <laughs> Come along, everybody. More room in the drive-in. I don't know how we got here, but I love it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another very important episode of Art House Drive-In. My name's T, and I'm here with uh, my lovely co-host, Robert. Hi, hi, everybody. So, we mentioned this in our last episode, but this is a very special episode to us because it is the last one for the season. Uh, we simply cannot keep pumping them out at the rate we've been going, <laughs> and we need a break. Uh, but more realistically, we just want to have a little more time to prepare so that things are even better uh, when we start bringing out the next episodes. So, mm-hmm. I think... I think in the spirit of this very special episode, I thought to myself, what do other season finales do? And then I thought, no, what do bad season finales do? <laughs> and that's when it hit me. They have a musical episode. So, oh, Rob, get ready. God. I am about to lay down a beat for you, and I need you to freestyle Ugh. your way into my heart. Ugh. I'm not giving you any time to prepare for this. It's this going in three, two, this is a literal. One. This is a literal physical nightmare. Uh, hey, hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the show. It's the show where we talk about weirdo I'm just films. kidding. That wasn't even the actual bit. <laughs> now, Rob, um, uh, what actual good season finales do is they, they talk to the creators of the show and the cast afterwards in an interview-like session. So, Rob, I have to ask you, you've taken the podcast world by storm, uh, as well as the film industry. Uh, what's your secret for success, Rob? One word answers only. Uh, 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 loneliness. Awesome, I, I, I completely agree. Uh, <laughs> next, uh, we've heard a lot about the second season of Art House Drive, and uh, without spoiling too much, what's your favorite film for the next season? Uh, um, uh... One word only, please. Uh, uh forest. Yes, yeah, I don't know what that means. <laughs> And, Rob, as, uh, as anyone who knows you is well aware of, you are a hardcore vegan. Uh, what, what sort of vegan snacks do you eat uh, to keep the energy going for these late recording sessions? Uh, seaweed. Awesome. Okay. I think we've just gotten a, uh, a peek behind the curtains of <laughs> Art House Drive-In star Rob, last name redacted. Oh, man. Um, and... I think we should probably get ahead with uh, the film for this evening, Uh, which, uh, what is it again, Rob? Oh, so it's Faces by John K. 
Cassavetes. I feel like now the audience knows me so well. I feel like we're close friends after you know that I eat seaweed. So I picked, you know, this is a very special episode other than being the finale because Faces uh, is really the film that got me to where I am right now in in time and space. Like uh, mm-hmm. I said in the first episode that I took this um, Cassavetes and Brisson seminar called Strange Art. And, uh, and this strange was the film, it was. Strange it was. And this was the film that really popped me off and uh, inspired me to go down this road of film studies land. Um, and loneliness, apparently. And loneliness. I was going for it because, you know, in this world, we just sit in the dark watching movies most of our lives. So it's, you know, sort of forced monasticism in watching all these films. I would argue that most uh, most people who go to the movies tend to go in groups or perhaps on a date. But um, no, that, truly for this, I have also mm-hmm. been watching it alone. So what does that say about me? Anyway, without looking deep into my psychology. <laughs> I mean, you've been my companion along this journey, which is very nice. I think that's the nice change of pace that I've liked is, you know, getting to talk with you every day. But, or not every day. That would be crazy. Every day schedule. Talk about burnout. Tell me how your first reaction was to faces because uh i this is one of my favorite films of all time like top three top two so i definitely i enjoyed it um i didn't i didn't so much like the topic matter but after Mm -hmm. sitting around and thinking about it a little bit and um seeing what other people had to say about cassavetes and faces and more more about what what you had to say I see that that's kind of his point. He was exposing a very ugly side of people. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I was so deeply uncomfortable watching it. But I think that he did just such a masterful job of mm-hmm. portraying that. Uh, it, it was very interesting. Yeah, this is one of the most emotionally raw films, I'd say, that I've ever seen. Maybe the most raw emotional film. Uh, it's so honest and so brutal in the way that it paints interaction, which we'll go into in uh, depth later on. Um, But as we do every episode, uh, let's dive into a little history. Um, I am by no means, like, I have some friends who are real Cassavetes experts, like, um, shout out Brett Wright, like, Brett Wright is my uh, Cassavetes go-to sort of guy. Um, But we'll give you sort of a brief overview of who this guy was. So So good old Johnny Cassavetes, Born in 1929, died, you know, relatively young in 1989. Um, he is known by many as an actor, primarily. Mm. He acted, he had like like 80 credits on IMDb, I think, acting-wise. Um, so he was this incredibly prolific Hollywood actor. Um, Truly insane, for considering uh, he lived a relatively shorter life. Yeah, like he was incredibly productive. Uh, and, you know, you might have seen movies that he was in, like The Dirty Dozen from 1967, Rosemary's Baby, very famously, where he um, clashed with the director also very publicly the, the whole time. Um, Do which you is know a horror who he played in Rosemary's Baby? I've never seen it, which is uh, strange to say because I've seen it, most of the stuff that, you know. He's is been it in, considering like, it's a horror movie? I would like to see it 
honestly just for the fact that he's in it but i've also heard it's a pretty good film so it is i can't i can't think of who he is i'm gonna try to figure this out later but yeah yeah once we'll watch movies where he actually acts in so you'll probably see you'll recognize him later on um he's also in a film that we're definitely going to cover at some point mikey and nikki which is directed by elaine may um one of the the great American directors who's kind of unsung from 1976. He's also in like the killers and a bunch of other Hollywood schlocky films. Mm. Um, but as a director, he's known for shadows in 1958, his inaugural film, um, husbands in 1970, a woman under the influence. One of my personal favorites in 1974, killing of a Chinese bookie in 1976, Opening night in 1977, and those are, are my favorites. Um, there's also Love Streams, Minnie and Moskowitz. Um, so, kind of so it seems that uh, Faces was one of his earlier works then? Yeah, it was his second directorial, like his ma- his like second major directed work. I think he directed other stuff for like TV and things like that, but this is like his second major film. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of kick-started the rest of them, I suppose? Definitely. Yeah. Shadows was successful, but this was like a very successful film for him. And we'll, we'll talk, we'll talk about why right now. Uh-huh. So uh, <laughs> and some background, John Cassavetes um, is sort of almost like a cliche, even though he's a very unique person where he was this like swashbuckling, hard partying, visionary artist who's known for gallivanting around Hollywood. Mm. He's in like so many Hollywood biographies, I'm sure parting it up with peter falk and ben gazzara and all those people Classic sort of legendary hollywood unique cliche sort of, but uh he's very he's a very divided figure and like you know if you read about him uh he has this one side of him where he's like kind of conniving and manipulative and gets lots of people to work for no money on his independent films uh for exposure yeah. perhaps for exposure perhaps a lot of them what were like tool. students uh, st- uh, weirdly enough, Steven Spielberg was actually a PA on Faces for eight days before he got sick and tired of it and quit. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, which is hilarious. Huh. Um, but uh, on the other side, he was this like incredible empath, and he could connect with anybody. And he was known for like, um, creating these atmospheres where actors could get their best performances. Like all of his um, mainstays that he worked with, mainstay actors, say that working with Cassavetes was the most was the greatest part of their career creatively um but it was also really tough because he was a really tough director to work with which is kind of the point but faces 1968 uh stars gina rollins who i haven't mentioned before he was married to gina rollins who's maybe my favorite actor um primarily for the performances in his films she is just like a transformative she's america's sweetheart She's an incredible, incredible actress, and she's incredible Great in faces. Um, but she's amazing in Woman Under the Influence, which everyone should check out. Um, it also stars John Marley, uh, Seymour Cassell, who's another one of my faves, um, and Lynn Carlin. Uh, we, we usually don't shout out like the actors in every film, but I because this film is so acting-heavy, I thought it was sort of important to. Mm-hmm. Um, he made faces during sort of what he describes as a creative lull in his career, uh, where he was still doing lots of stuff, but he said like he wasn't doing anything that made him really passionate at the time. He was working for um, a, a company called Screen Gems in their like new concepts department, and um, they just kept because uh, he was like trying to write for TV or create ideas for TV, and they kept like turning him down. He had like twenty proposals or something that all got rejected, and um. Jeez. Yeah, so he was like at that time he was just like you know screw it. 
I'm going to make a film myself. I'm going to fully finance. He paid for the entire thing, $225,000 to make this film all told, apparently. Uh, and he was he was one of the first I haven't mentioned this before he's one of the first directors to really like fully finance big independent films like there are many films that were before this that were financed by the filmmakers but like this is one of the first that has like a big exposure I should say you know so that's why he wanted people to be paid an exposure because he spent all of his money making it yeah exactly and that's sort of the still a, the, still a dick move but okay still a dick move but it's also like he would give people points on the project like all of those kind of weird film industry things to say like we'll pay you later sort of thing mm. but um that's kind of the independent film gig unfortunately because there's not a lot of money in, in general um but uh in this way he was able to work with like friends and acquaintances. Like a lot of the actors who worked on the project weren't super successful professionals other than Gina Rollins and John Marley had some success, but like um, most of them were, I wouldn't say full amateurs, but like had some, maybe a little bit of experience, but um, not, you know, super stars. Like he would work with later, like Peter Falk, like was in a bunch of his films and Peter Falk is like this huge famous actor. Um, right. And uh, he says, that uh, he wrote faces in a lot of sort of like desperation. Like he said, I wrote faces out of a lot of anger and dismay uh, with society. And, and he found a lot of things to be sort of distasteful of his own class of like upper middle class white people, basically who uh, all they really cared about was like money to him. Like he was saying this, like um, they would get to this point in their lives and they were just sort of desperate and gliding along and, and um like he saw the American dream sort of warped in the upper middle class in the sixties where yeah, um, he, like, he definitely you know. does a good job of showing how, yeah. uh, how dismayed <laughs> yeah. he felt and how just lackluster. And it's important to know that like a lot of his films are very, very personal. So this is all about, and he says this openly in interviews that um, they're all of the characters are like based on people that he knows basically. Like he, a lot of himself is in John Marley's character, Dickie. Um, and a lot of, you know, people that he's met are in all of these people. That's a rough self-portrait. Right. Yeah, he's very self-critical in these films, which uh, which is interesting, too. Like, you know, it's almost like a kind of diary sometimes when you're watching them to know. Because he was very boisterous in real life. Like, he was kind of annoying, apparently. <laughs> like, he was, like, <laughs> like, screaming and yelling and stuff like that. Um, and so the film, making the film was sort of described as, like, almost like a party where it's like you're coming together to make this thing that you're all very passionate about and you love it, but you're not really doing it for money. Um, and he was described as doing like uh, so many deals to like film in places for free. Um, and I think uh, Lynn Carlin like made a deal with a hairdresser to do her hair for free and stuff like that. Like all of these different, you know, things to save money and, and you know, and, and cut corners. But it, it uh, resulted in a movie that actually grossed quite a bit of money. I think it grossed like $6 million or something Oh wow! Um, for an independent film in the sixties. That's fully financed by the director. That's pretty crazy. Um, I feel like even now for an independent film to make that amount of money, that would still be insane. Like knowing nothing about the film, it sounds like a wild number. So by the end of 1969, uh, it made approximately $6 million at the box office, which is bananas. 
Yeah, crazy. And it, it like, broke house records at, like, Carnegie Hall. It was, like, crazy success. Um, the, well, quick question from my part, uh, yeah. because this is something that we've talked about on different episodes. Yeah, sure. Uh, but what did people think? Like, specifically, what did critics think? Because that's always an interesting yes. one, because they usually are on the opposite side of where we come from. So, so everyone was divided, critics included. So someone that we've really been down on on the show um, is good old Roger Ebert, and he loved this film which is hilarious. No kidding. The guy was all over the map. I don't know what is going on, what was going on in his brain, but uh, he thought this film was genius. However, another very famous film critic at the time, Pauline Kael, hated... Damn it, Pauline Kael. Hated this film. Hated this film and hated Cassavetti's entire work, frankly. Like, she was not a fan of his films at all. And there are famous stories of run-ins with him and Pauline Kael and hating each other and screaming at each other. Um... And I, I don't have the same taste as Pauline Kale at all. So you know, I get it. Uh, but audiences were also very divided on it because um, it's weird because a lot of people went to see it, right? But there were many, many walkouts, like walkouts, where people would go to the movie and leave in droves, uh, hmm. which is crazy. I've never walked out of a film ever. ever? Really? I I walked out of a film in a class once. I think. What, what was that one? Uh, it was probably a film that I would like now. It's called um, Discreet Charms of the Bourgeoisie. It's by Louise uh, Boonwell. And I would probably appreciate it now. I was just having a bad day, and I was like, I can't take this film. And the professor, it was one of those classes where, like, the professor's not there. Yeah, um, I, 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 hey, I've walked out of a film. The one? Grinch uh, with Jim Carrey. Whoa. Yeah. That's a, hated it? Uh, that was also when I was a lot younger, probably, like, yeah. 13 or 14. 14 it wasn't when it came out i don't think i remember that film being kind of terrifying um, yeah yeah sorry i didn't mean to sidebar there so it's weird um people complained or audiences complained that he didn't explain enough about the motives of each character that um things were sort of unclear that it was confusing that obviously it was isn't that something yeah. that ebert like complained about in in taste of cherry and now for this one he's saying oh it's fine in his little snippet of the review i read of faces he's like this is such an honest portrayal of family life and of commute like communication and things like that um but he's not hmm. truly all truly over all board. over he, the board. he doesn't care that casavetti's explains nothing about any of these people um but he does in taste of cherry which you know who knows what's going on the, who was going on the guy's brain but uh you know, at least he got it right with faces. <laughs> so I'm, that's all I'm saying. But uh, we could go on and on about the history of this film. Um, there's so much. Like, there's, you know, there's so much to read about it out there. So please, I, I implore you all to go and dive into um, the crazy stories around this film and his other films. But now, T, would you like to give um, a little synopsis of, of what goes on in this weird world? Would I? Please, would you? I, sh I sure would. So, let's see. Where to begin? Ah, yes, the beginning. So Faces is thankfully a return to uh, the more narrative films that we have been avoiding for the past couple episodes. I could go very in-depth and tell you every little thing that goes on in this scene, but how would that be fun? The important thing is to know that you have a few main characters. You've got Dickie. You've got Dickie's wife, Maria. You've got Dickie's 
woman associate, his gal pal, his special lady friend, uh, Jeannie. Uh, you have Maria's friends. You have a local gigolo named Chet. And a few assholes named Jackson, McCarthy, and Freddie. So the film primarily follows Dickie and his wife, Maria. Dickie loves going out on the town, partying uh, with, his, with his good pal, Freddie. Um, and meeting meeting up with with Jeannie, uh, who he is allegedly in love with, although he is married to his wife, although that ends rather quickly in the film. Um, he he goes over there to try to prove his own manliness, kind of like flaunts uh, his like power and position while all the other guys in the film are doing the same, all vying for her attention it's a whole lot of fragile and toxic masculinity in this film um whereas with maria it's a lot of not the opposite maybe the other side of the, uh, the other side of the same coin uh for maria her story primarily revolves around her going out on the town with all of her friends um and all of them taking back this one one sexy boy named uh chet uh, who 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 spends the night dancing and and flirting with all of them, um, before eventually landing on Maria, um, and it's a story of just how all these people are unhappy in their own relationships and are so fickle and trying to find something new and something better, and inevitably return to yeah. their same old routine. It was a very <laughs> A very depressing film in the uh, in the comparisons that you could make to society even now, despite the fact that it was yeah, made in 1968. This is a very universal film, I find, at least. Um, <clears throat> timeless film. Because it's just about human communication, really. If you want to boil everything down, mm-hmm. it's about like cultural coded behaviors and communication um, and, and gender and masculinity right. and stuff. And... Uh, um, so where to begin? Where to fucking begin with this film? How about at the beginning? <laughs> Something we talked about before recording um, that to me is one of the most uh, interesting areas is how emotional atmospheres will clash together in these scenes, um, especially in the beginning sequence. So you see, you know, oh, so you see Jeannie, 100%. we talked about this sequence in particular, which is, I think, one of your faves, but you see a... Uh, Jeannie and Freddie and Dickie gallivanting around and they're performing for each other and you see these emotions like bouncing around the room practically about how they're connecting with each other and there are certain moments where it just hits the brakes where everything is going along so swimmingly they Mm -hmm. love each other and then uh, it falls into an abyss of anger or confrontation or sadness and a few of them happen uh, one of the most interesting ones in the beginning well, is when uh, Fred says, like, screw friendship or something like that. He's like, uh, it's it's it mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything. And Dickie's like, what do you mean? Like, fr- friendship is important. Like, you know how long I've known this schmuck? And, like, it just it feels like someone turned on the, uh, the emergency brake in a car and it's just come to a halt mm-hmm. like this or this train or something like that. It's just like the happiness and sadness and anger are just like clashing together like clouds almost you know what i mean yeah and it's interesting because a lot of the times in this film these shifts in tone happen when someone's masculinity is threatened 
Um, for for instance, uh, when it suddenly becomes clear that Jeannie likes Fred, uh, mm-hmm. Dickie a little more than Freddie, uh, he immediately narrows his eyes and like, so how much do you cost? Ugh. You have to cost something. Uh, that moment kills me every time I see it. And he, we'll talk about this in a bit, he closes up on Freddie's face and you see like the mm-hmm. anger in his facial expression as he asks her this and you see you see his, his lizard his, his reptilian eyes <laughs> flash his reptilian eyelids and and uh it's just so cutting because he knows exactly what he's doing he just knows he's cutting away the emotional connection that they're all feeling this whole time um in spite and that's a lot of part of this where mm-hmm. Cassavetti's puts these contrasting emotional atmospheres or tones together in one sequence um, in sort of not a haphazard way, but a very jarring way. And to me, it um, it's so profound the way he does that. It never feels contrived. It always feels um, organic and incredibly sort of powerful. Yeah, you can absolutely see where every yeah. character is coming from in this film. Uh, aside from Dickie divorcing his wife, mm-hmm. which to me came out of nowhere... Every single character's intentions are and it's very weird clear. because you get that sometimes through words, but a lot of the time you get that from these these quick close-ups that he does in the edit where um, close-ups on their what, Rob? On their face. <laughs> and and so like there will be these sequences. The, the sequence that stands out to me is when um Chet and the ladies are sitting around. And, Chet and the ladies. And Chet says coming something. at you live at. <laughs> Orlando on the ones and twos. So in these, and when he cuts to, you know, Chet speaking, and it cuts to Louise, Maria, Florence, Billy May, back to Chet. You feel through these snippets of people's faces and eye and eyes and expressions how exactly how they're feeling at that moment because their performances are so on top of it. Their performances are so great, um, and it really yeah, especially like you said, these were amateur actors. They did not come off that way. Yeah, I mean. Some of them are definitely not amateurs. Some of them have experience, but Cassavetes has a way of elevating all of the performances on set. Like there are stories where um he'd be off camera and like dancing to their performances and kind of performing with them, where he's like pantomiming movements and things like that, and and trying to get them to get uh, to to emote in some way. What um, a goofball! He was such a goofball, and even Gina Rollins. I think Gina Rollins was you know she says that this is one of the hardest films she's ever had to work on but the the performance is so incredible and and he would never give people direct directions but he would like tell them stories and give them vague things like vague things to talk about or or tell ask them what they're feeling and have a conversation and results Hmm. in this way where you can just cut to someone's face and the emotion is like pouring out of them almost you know gross gross but but beautiful and something i want to ask you about um is how did you feel about the density of 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 dramatic beats in these sequences well i didn't see any dramatic vegetables <laughs> only one could only wonder and wish <laughs> um when you say dramatic beats what exactly do you mean so by a dramatic beat i mean that moment where it's like i don't know if a snap can come on in the, the audio but um like when fred says freddie says how much do you charge or chet says to louise i think we're making a fool of ourselves and the room just drops 
Oh my god, yeah. You know I mean, where he gets he for the viewers, he he gets Louise to dance, who's kind of like introverted, um, and he sort of brings it out of her. And then when she starts to dance and having fun with him, uh, he says to her, "I think we're making a fool of ourselves." When he sees well, that, it's Maria because yeah, he, he catches up. a look from from Maria, yeah. and and the, immediately yeah, a floor drops out. Like, how do you feel about how dense each scene was of those moments where your heart just drops? Um. I mean, I thought that was what made the movie so interesting to watch because you're so drawn in by the energy uh, that they're portraying throughout most of it, uh, that infectious laughter and that like lightheartedness, and then to have it just ripped away from you is both entirely frustrating and also really compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I, I don't think that it would be the same movie if you took that away from it. I agree. I think that's the core of this film. And it's great that you said laughter. Great, 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 great broadcasting. Because I really wanted to talk about how multifaceted something like laughter is in a Cassavetes film. Like, um, before this, we talked about something like a laugh track or how laughter is used in comedies. Like, laughter almost has a like a one-dimensionality in a lot of different um, film, show, film and TV shows, or or, or you know mm-hmm. things like that, and um, laughter is often so painful in faces, which is so interesting to me. It's a way that people buffer themselves from getting serious with each other. Right. It it never feels particularly genuine. No. And in, and uh, a scene that's really cutting about that is um, when uh, Dickie and Maria are in bed. And Dickie is telling just joke after joke, like silly dad joke or something. And Maria is trying to like get things grooving in the bedroom. And um, it feels almost like he's rejecting her in a weird way. Um, well, I'm, he, he probably probably wasn't in love with her anymore. That's why he was uh, about to divorce her. And before that, he was talking about how she wouldn't like put out. And that was his thing. He's like, we don't have sex anymore. But uh, he's in bed sort of avoiding intimacy by telling jokes and laughing with her um, and not getting serious. Like, And he even says that in the film where he says um, friends are people that don't get serious with each other. They just laugh. So laugh is like a border from connection sometimes in this film. Um, right, right. Um, and then there is another kind of like dramatic uh, root vegetable in that scene where like they go from making all these jokes and then just suddenly like stop and like turn to the other side and go to sleep yeah yeah and it's and it's unresolved too like that's a lot of this is a big point in film uh uh uh, here's a a viewing idea of the week this just in viewing idea of the week resolution is a huge thing in cinema things need to be resolved all the fucking time if you're writing a script out there making a film people want to see things that are resolved this film has so many things that are not (laughs) resolved uh which is like how life is you know what i mean what happened to chet what happened to chet what happens to their marriage after the film ends what happens with all the ladies what happens with florence god with florence oh poor florence we could really go in on the complicated character that is florence Uh, the lonely housewife this Um, this could be like a 12-hour podcast (laughs) yeah that is something that like we should probably cover we cannot cover everything about faces in 45 minutes no matter how hard we try i'm looking at the list of things we have to say and we're already most of the way through this episode (laughs) 
And we're nowhere near close. And that's what makes Faces amazing, too, is, like, you could talk about one B or C, even C character, for, like, 15 minutes, and you can have a, 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 a beautiful conversation about it. That's why Cassavetes' films are so incredible to me, is that he packs so much into them. It's like he's... um. He's packing a suitcase full of ideas and like stomping on it and standing on it using like a sledgehammer mm-hmm. to zip it up. Yeah, not not a wasted scene in this one. No, not a wasted moment. And another thing I wanted to talk about is sort of like at the the beating of the film, but there are all these sort of coded behaviors that lie throughout faces, but Casavetti's films in general, where it's like, "Good morning, how are you? Hello," and like the handshakes and. Um, what is your business? This is my business, and things like that. This way of, oh, are like, you a golf man? Oh no, a tennis man. Oh, tennis. Yeah, yeah the like small talk, superficiality, <sighs> way of communicating. Superficiality. That's a good word. Yeah, because it's like, you know, sometimes in films you see these uh, conversations where people are connecting in such a deep, profound way. There are so many conversations and faces that are so superficial in what they're saying. And it's all the emotions sort of behind it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sort of funny because in uh, other movies, a lot of times I'll be watching and I'll be like, nobody talks like this. <laughs> no, Nobody goes up to a stranger and it's just like, man, the the superficiality of life, am I right? <laughs> yeah. Or, no, they do, but they're always really drunk when they say that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in this one, it was like the small talk you'd see like in an elevator like with coworkers you don't know super well yeah or something like that and it just made me so sad yeah yeah and you see the two characters that really resist that too um are chet and genie right like chet even yeah. says at one point in the film we won't say what happens before this but he says um that people act so mechanically and even he does he's like uh i'm the sexy guy yeah, I can get anything I want. Blah. And he's like, he's talking about himself as a robot and like he's enacting this persona. Um, and Jeannie tries to cut through Dickie's persona. Do you think she's very successful, T, in doing that? Uh, you know, without giving too much away, no. I'd say she fucking doesn't. <laughs> she tries so hard, though, and Dickie resists her cutting it like through his exterior almost, or he lets her in a little bit. And then rejects her sort of outright at the end, which is... Yeah, in a very similar... Well, in a very mirrored scene to what you see him doing to his wife uh, when they're in bed trying to get intimate. Uh, Later in the film, won't say how, won't say why, but him and Jeannie are in bed together as well. Mm -hmm. And he's doing the same shit. He's he's making jokes. He's doing uh, tongue twisters. It's, uh, It's funny. He got what he wanted, and then he realized it still didn't make him happy and so Uh, he's put up those walls yet again yeah and it's this um sort of like emotional cruelty almost and disconnection that is so heartbreaking about this film um but so honest it's so weird to say that about film like oh this film is so honest but like watch this film and you'll see so many things that you you have gone through daily for your whole life um but highlighted and hyperbolized on film in a way that's very cutting and very like uh what is he almost like educational almost it's like it's like highlighting the sort of like emotional systems that we go through every day but maybe don't always think about you know Mm -hmm. yeah um and definitely definitely highlights 
all sorts of issues with masculinity. Oh, yeah. Wow. The dudes in this film. Oh, my God. I mean, it reminded me of, like, stories I've read online or heard from friends about uh, those, like, quote-unquote nice guys. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It, just so utterly cringy, just constantly trying to one-up each other, uh, like, flexing on other guys, mm-hmm. like, to establish dom- dominance. Yeah. Um, talking down to women like being surprised uh being surprised when they have anything to say mm-hmm. or saying you don't talk enough you talk too much yeah. it was oh god it was it's horrible really really rough to watch yeah and it's it's crazy that a movie that came out you know sort of early for this like this is a this is a tome of toxic masculinity and 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 maybe just like the dominance that people need to to revert on each other but like and the best example of that is mccarthy and jackson so uh, absolutely so mccarthy is uh i don't know his title he's some like moderately successful business person and jackson is his underling so jackson is constantly fawning on him and making sure he's happy and helping him out and um, yeah and and just to set the scene a little bit uh, this this sequence comes uh, right after Dickie divorces his wife and goes to meet up with Jeannie. So these two men are vying for her attention as well as her friend. Yeah. Um, and then Dickie shows up throwing an extra wrench into this into the situation. Yeah, and to a point where they actually physically fight. And then yeah. uh, McCarthy like hurts his knee or something, and Jackson has to like stroke his ego to get him back in. And then they become friends once McCarthy learns that Dickie is like the chairman of the board of this big company, and he sort of like is like subservient to him after that. It's so strange. It's almost like watching like Animal Planet or something. Mm-hmm. It's like watching a nature documentary, but you realize that Ah uh, yes, you the know, the head lion has proved his dominance yeah. over the younger vying male uh, and has now added him to his pack. And and the the heartbreaking thing is that um McCarthy goes into to Jeannie's bedroom and sort of gushes to her about his sadness and um, his sort of like failures in life and his hopelessness and his and helplessness almost and then he after like gushing to Jeannie like a therapist he goes into the bathroom and messes up his hair and messes up his clothes to make it look like he just had sex with her and goes out to Jackson and is like oh man I just made it baby I just had yep. some nice intercourse and uh, and it's crazy yeah. it's like you would brag about having sort of you know sex with, with Jeannie and cover up the fact that you were just like emotionally connecting with her too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not to mention it felt like it felt like that scene was yet another slight for him because he suddenly became vulnerable for this woman. He opened up and talked about this stuff, and she didn't kind of reciprocate in the same fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, like his ego's under attack. Yeah, and he has to make this up to kind of feel like he's the man again exactly and another character in another se- in the beginning sequence fred even says um or is it freddie someone in this film says uh my reputation is at stake here when, i think it was freddie yeah when freddie when he um first says what do you charge and dickie starts to argue with him and he's like no my reputation is at stake here and that to me is very cutting to how um sort of like 
patriarchal behavioral codes act in these situations and cassavetes was also just to let people know he was kind of like a macho dude he was like an athletic guy um and known for being this sort of masculine guy but at the same time is sort of self-critical in this way um we could talk about so much more in this film we could spend hours and hours and hours on this film we would be doing ourselves a disservice if we didn't just go for a little bit on the ending scene oh yes that is we cannot talk about this film without talking about the ending scene so let me set let me me set the scene so i won't say there's a big thing that happens i'm not going to say what it is because i won't spoil it but uh yeah just watch the film it's it's not all that long it's like what two hours yeah it's at 210 something like that yeah. yeah um it's it's on criterion yep check it out check it out sponsor us criterion please <laughs> um but it's it's worth it i yeah. can happily say it's worth it yeah something bad happens to maria and uh chetty helps her through it and seymour cassell's character chetty helps her through it and dickie comes back and in and you know uh maria and him have a row uh and at the end of the a film, a straight brouhaha. At the end, of, this is my favorite ending of any movie. Let me just say that right off, right off the bat. There's this big staircase in their house. Maria is sitting at the top of the staircase after they had this huge row, and and Dickie is sitting at the bottom. He gets cigarettes from the the kitchen, and they're just sitting there smoking for the briefest of moments, where it seems like they're at the the trough of a wave that just crashed. And they're sitting there in this like moment of almost just like complete exhaustion, emotionally, physically, everything. And they're just sitting there smoking cigarettes in this like beautifully shot staircase. And they're just like, mm-hmm. what else can I do? I'm just going to sit here and smoke cigarettes before I have to like pick up the pieces of my life again. And it is yeah. just like the most beautiful ending I've ever seen to a film it goes on for a little while too when they start kind of like almost going about their day like kind of walk it like stepping over each other to head up the stairs and coming back down with it and it's it's in complete silence they they don't really say anything to each other it's just like they both know what the other has been doing and now they're back and they'll have to resolve that at some point maybe but for now they've who knows just gonna sit there they could even just stay together for you have no idea you have no idea what's Mm -hmm. gonna happen and it's like yeah there's that resolution and films coming at you again yeah this is a huge part in cassavetes movies where at the end of them a lot of the times nothing is resolved and people just go about their lives like almost nothing they try to do it like nothing has happened which is him trying to say like this is what happens to people in their life they go through these like huge traumatic events and are and don't resolve them and are just forced to go about their day and you know it leaves these sort of like ingrained traumas in people like you know what i mean like after looking at the ending you think about um if there's room for like emotional resolution in in this type of like american society you know what i mean but unfortunately that's gonna have to remain uh a hypothetical because we'll never know how it all ends we'll never know how it all ends but we'll just watch, a, we'll watch the movie a thousand mm-hmm. more times trying to i uh, i would definitely watch it again i would oh. i would show someone this film for sure Woo, yes man uh, sh- oh show boy these films because this is another thing like uh i worked for a director for a, a bit for a long time he's kind of a friend now in new york 
And um, we always had arguments about if people know who Cassavetes is. And he's like, come on, man. He's like one of the most famous American directors of all time. But like, I knew so many people our age in film school who had no idea who Cassavetes was. These are film students. Yeah, I can I can safely tell you I had no idea who he was before this. So the more, more people that watch Cassavetes films, to me, the better. Because I am a huge Cassavetes nut fandom person. Maybe not of him mm-hmm. as, as a person as much, let's say. Um, although he wasn't like a monster. He was just kind of a son of a bitch. But he made some yeah. of the, the best American films of all time. And Gina Rollins, I want to say, as an actress, puts on some of the best performances of all time in his films. So... How did you feel about your first season of of diving into the pool of art house film? It it took me places I didn't quite expect to go. Uh, before this, I definitely didn't have to think in depth about the films I'd watched before. Uh, I I wasn't strictly a Marvel or action movie guy, but like I definitely didn't put them under this kind of microscope before it. It's interesting getting to hear about all the ways that these are produced and all the film theories and techniques that you've told me about throughout the past couple months. Um, I, I can safely say I'm looking forward to learning more. Oh, it's going to get crazy. Because I, I haven't been holding back, but I got I got doozy after we could do this forever. Um, and for mm-hmm. me, my goal as a um, film person, I don't know, I work in the film industry now and... Uh, I've been in academia for a while. My goal is to sort of connect people with this kind of film. And this is, you know, one of the best ways to do that. And frankly, one of the most fun ways. So this is a, a, a pleasure. But we're at about that time uh, yeah. where we need to start wrapping things up. And unfortunately, there won't be a film next week. There might not be a film the week after that. But we will definitely be keeping everyone posted. Uh, We will be posting on Twitter what we intend on doing. Um, Until then, I mean, please uh, follow all the lovely programs on Split Tooth. Keep keep reading uh, all the film reviews and synesthesia and uh, the split picks, which I imagine are just going to be continuing for Mm -hmm. a while after this. Yeah, Yeah. we're going to put some work into you know, with our experience that we've gotten through this season to improve and keep growing. And we're very happy that uh, our tiny audience seems to be growing by the week and that people seem to be digging our stuff. And please reach out to us on Twitter uh, to, you know, say films that we should cover or have reactions to the episode down in the comments, all that, all that uh, media creator stuff. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you if you've got some complaints or some questions or think that we misspoke, we probably did. Please just like shoot us a message. Yeah. Uh, we we won't take it very personally. Mm-hmm. I'll cry about it and I'll be thinking about it for years to come. But that's not your problem. Um, well, with that, I think we are going to leave you to the rest of your evenings, afternoons, morning, what have you. I don't know when you listen to this. Once again, thank you from all of us at Art House Drive-In and uh, from Split Tooth. And uh, I really hope that you continue to listen to us when we come back for season two. Season two coming soon.